Hey, folks, Brian Loritz here. Welcome to the Kainos podcast. We are a pastoral podcast exploring what ethnic unity looks like at a large, predominantly white church known as the Summit Church. We are across 12 campuses, soon going to open up to about 14 campuses, and we are in this journey, and we want to just come to you from time to time and bring what I regard to be uh, very insightful and significant voices from various perspectives that will help us all uh, in our journey into becoming instruments, ministers of reconciliation, as Paul calls it and. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm so excited uh, to be with Dr. David Eastman today. Uh, I, um, I I read his book, uh, did not know him personally. In fact, just chatted with him for the first time just a few moments before uh, we began our podcast. But he wrote a book uh, that came out in 2021 uh, called Early North African Christianity. That really just blew my mind. One of the things I try to do uh, intentionally, and I do it throughout the year, uh, but uh, especially during the first quarter of the year, I just like to read a lot uh, of works in the area of race and theology, and I would highly recommend his book. Again, it's Early North African Christianity. Uh, Dr. David Eastman has a PhD from Yale University. He is also the Joseph Glenn Cheryl Chair of Bible at the Macaulay School, uh, an adjunct fellow at the University of Regensburg in Germany, and he's also a fellow with the Center for Early uh, African Christianity. Welcome, David. It's great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, as we were chatting just a little bit, uh, crazy connection. The Macaulay School is in Chattanooga. Uh, I pastored for 12 years in Memphis. While in Memphis, I served on the board of a school called the Presbyterian Day School. Our kids, when they were little, went there. The headmaster at the time is a guy by the name of Lee Burns. Just know and love Lee. And um, Lee would always tell us he was a lifer at Presbyterian Day School unless Macaulay came calling, uh, which is that an all-boys school? school, David? It is, yeah. Yep. It's 6 through 12, all boys, yes. Yeah, um, but just a, a very influential school in that part of the country, and that is where uh, Dr. David uh, Eastman serves. Um, uh, David, I just got to tell you, uh, the book was amazing, right from jump. Um, and I, I'll get into it in just a few moments as, as to what specifically grabbed me. But just just tell me um, what how did you how did you come to write on this subject? Was this kind of uh, your academic training? Like, what is your journey uh, into this space of writing on North African Christianity? Well, so my field of study academically is early Christianity as a whole, and within the field, I'm probably know, known more for my work on martyrdom and biblical reception. So I do a lot of work on the deaths of Peter and Paul and the deaths of other apostles. That's probably what I'm academically known for primarily, but I've always had this interest in, in social history. So what's the story beyond just, beyond just the elite, beyond just the, the top of society? What can we understand about the way that normal people live? Because I'm a normal person. Like I, my dad was a pastor. I grew up as a normal guy. And there are, there are thousands indeed 
millions of people from the early church whose names will never be known to us. But can we try to understand their experiences, um, their motivations from the, the evidence? And, and if we look more closely, in some cases, the answer to that is yes. That's really my approach to a lot of my scholarship. In terms of, of this particular project, I am passionate about helping people in the church understand our, our past. And I tell my students all the time, if you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you are. And I think this is really true of church history. And, 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 and you may have had this experience, but many people bemoan that biblical literacy is not where it used to be. And I would say literacy of church history has really never been where it could be or should be. And so when the Center for Early African Christianity approached me and said, would you like to come and teach a course in Cairo on the topic? The answer was immediately yes. And what I love about their work is that they are trying to empower African leaders and African institutions to understand and embrace Christianity as part of an indigenous African identity. And, and I love that, not because it's politically correct or because it's you know fashionable, just because it's true. It's true. As an historian, it's true to say that Christianity is older in Africa than it is in Europe. It's just historical fact. And so I went to do the lectures as a kind of a first step to empowering people to, to embracing kind of their own tradition. It's not something that I gave to them. This is, this is their tradition as well. And out of that, we began to ask questions. You know, how could we make this material available more widely to other teachers and students across the continent of Africa specifically. And that eventually led to the book project. Now, obviously I'm hoping people outside Africa find it useful, but really my primary audience for this is the student going to the Bible Institute um, in Sierra Leone or in Uganda, who's never run across this material and thinks of Christianity as a white man's religion. And then suddenly understands like, wait a minute, Africa is at the center of the story of Christianity. And that to me is exciting. Just as a church historian, as a member of the church, it's exciting to me to help people understand how we are all in some ways part of this conversation, especially maybe communities who have felt that they were secondary or tertiary um, and helping them understand, no, this is, this is our collective story. So that's really the, the impetus for the book and the motivation for the book. And really what I hope the book will, will do will be a resource to inspire future generations to dig deeper and understand more of this tradition and take the work farther and expand it and, and impact and help grow the kingdom by understanding things about where we've come from. So David, here we go, man. I, I just got to tell you, I grew up in a Bible teaching, um, smaller size, independent black church. I never heard my pastor who's African-American make the connection between early Christianity and Africa. Never. I'm also theologically trained. So I go to Bible college, I go to seminary, later on do doctoral work. Um, never uh, did my professors talk about the centrality of Africa or even make the connection between Africa and the earliest days of Christianity. And so because of that, I mean, of course, I learned about Augustine. Of course, I learned about some of these other leaders. But but they're, they're never said to me uh, in ways in which, hey, Augustine is— He's in Africa. He's an African individual. And so right. because of that, I leave with this assumption that that Christianity is it's white. Right. Um, and that uh, my 
my country of origin for my ancestors, my continent of origin for my ancestors, I should say, instead, is completely just kind of left out of the story of Christianity. Right. So could you just kind of back up and just make the connection between the continent of Africa and specifically what you write about is North Africa uh-huh. and the earliest days of Christianity? Sure. So let's start with a definition here geographically. When the Romans said Africa, they had a province that included parts of Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and modern Libya. And uh, Egypt was a a separate province, but also a province of of the Roman Empire. So let's go to the Gospels, where Jesus is on his way to the cross, and and someone is called upon to help him carry the cross. And we're given the name of this individual. Simon of Cyrene. Well, where's Cyrene? Mm. Cyrene is on the north coast of Libya. Mm. So here we have a, an individual specifically named mm. who comes from the continent of Africa. So there in the Gospels, it's there. Um, when you begin looking at Acts, you have the Ethiopian eunuch. Another figure, we, we talk about the Ethiopian eunuch. I think I grew up in the church without knowing where Ethiopia was. Wow. But when we say pause and think about the Ethiopian eunuch, that raises the question, well, why is, why is a man from Ethiopia coming to worship in Jerusalem? And that opens up a whole history of, of the worship of God, of the one true God in sub-Saharan Africa that predates Christianity. And immediately we begin to think, okay, wait a minute, this story is, is bigger than we might think. Um, what happens, I think, with figures such as Augustine or in the book, Tertullian or Cyprian, what what happens is that their identities are wrapped up in or kind of overwhelmed by this idea of they, they were Romans, huh. Romanness. So the Latin word is Romanitas, huh. and they spoke Latin. So, and, and Tertullian probably also knew some Greek, but we think of them as, okay, they wrote in Latin, that means they were Romans, so we think of them through the lens of Rome and the Roman world, but they weren't Romans. Now, they, they were Africans. There's a, a book, I'll just plug this book, my, my good friend David Wilhite has written a book called Tertullian the African. And it's a more scholarly book, but the whole focus of the book is what about Tertullian was particularly African. Hmm. And when you begin looking at, at these, these stories and the, and the leaders and the theology coming out of Africa, you begin to realize how central Africa was. Africa was considered the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Hmm. Um, it wasn't on the fringes of the Roman Empire. It was at the center of the Roman Empire. Theologically, certainly, but also politically, um, in terms of trade, it's at the center of the Roman world. Someone like Tertullian, someone like Augustine, yes, they took part in Roman society as a whole, but they also come from a very particular cultural perspective. And often those kinds of distinctions just get lost. They're really, and I would say in church history as a whole, there's been a tendency to think of Latin or Greek and they're lumped into these big categories. But Greek, is that a Greek speaker from Greece? Is it a Greek speaker from Egypt? Hmm. Is it a Greek speaker from Syria? So these kinds of distinctions in the last 10 years, really scholars have begun unpacking this more. But with Africa, part of what I try to do in the book is show how a lot of the early issues the church is thinking about, um, how do you deal with persecution? What, What do we do with the doctrine of God? How do we understand this? Uh, how do we deal with church unity and how do we deal with the aftermath of persecution? How do we deal with theological issues like Augustine's going to deal with? Those questions are adjudicated 
through texts and authors coming out of the continent of Africa. So we have to understand where they're coming from. Um, in the case of Tertullian, there are particular things about him that come through in his writings that are true largely of many North African Christians, but not true of Roman Christians. Cyprian has a very particular view of church unity that is, that is particularly North African, but not Roman. And these are some of the, the nuances that I'm trying to unpack in the book. And when we begin doing that, we realize that, wait, Africa is, is as central really as Italy. When you look at early Christian theology, it's right there. Um, these are not afterthoughts. So could could you could could you give us some um some examples of what you're talking about like sure. like for the modern day Christian yes um you know some theological assumptions or some obvious theological things that the modern day Christian might hold on to mm-hmm. um what are those things that you would say hey that's actually rooted in Africa Yeah so let's start with a big one trinity hmm. Now the Trinity is never explicitly, in the Bible, it never says, and here's the Trinity. Theologians, and I would agree with this, would say the Trinity is present in Scripture, right. but it's not named as such. Right. Well, the word Trinity is coined by Tertullian. So the word Trinity, Trinitas in Latin, comes from Africa. And he's hmm. the first one to say it. Hmm. He also explicitly argues that the Holy Spirit is fully divine. And I want to just pause on this for a second. Because if people have, maybe they've done a little theology, they're kind of generally aware that there were early church councils and that these councils passed these creeds or theological statements. And they may be familiar with this thing called the Nicene Creed. And if you're Catholic or Episcopalian, and some Lutherans will say it regularly, and sometimes it's talked about that this is a fourth century creed where for the first time the church finally identifies the full divinity of all members of the Trinity. Hmm. And it's, it's not true. Hmm. It's not true because Tertullian had already identified that. And, and in fact, the pushback is, if you look at the Nicene Creed, let's talk about the Spirit. The Spirit is not identified as God. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. But Tertullian, 150 years earlier, was saying the Spirit is God. So the basic concept of the Trinity, our understanding of the traditional Orthodox understanding of the Trinity, is really enunciated first by Tertullian. Wow. Uh, let's go to Augustine. I, I can stop there. Or I could go on no, to Augustine. No, no, no. Yeah, g- give, us, yeah. give us Augustine. Yeah, so Augustine, one of the big questions with Augustine that he's remembered for is this question of, of what is God's role and what is a human role in, in not only just salvation, but in general. So Augustine famously has a debate with a, a British monk named Pelagius, and Pelagius taught that God gives human beings all the tools they need to be perfect. And then it's up to them to decide to follow through and be perfect. And Augustine says, no, human beings, by their very nature, cannot be perfect. Hmm. And there's a debate there. And I would say there's still this debate still shows up in contemporary Christianity. When you begin thinking about categories like the sovereignty of God, what is God's role in salvation? What is the human response? Those are still questions that are being argued that were talked about in the 4th and 5th century with Augustine. Hmm. So these are a couple examples um, of theological. And can I throw out one more yes. since I'm kind of on yeah. a roll? Yeah. Um, let's talk about church unity. And I want to be super careful with how I talk about this. But 
but Cyprian. Cyprian is a bishop in North Africa in the middle of the third century. He dies as a martyr in 258. And one of the things that happens during his time is persecution breaks out. And at that time, some people, some Christians in North Africa, choose to protect their lives by basically going through the motions to appease the Roman Empire. Others refuse. And some of those people die in the arena, and some of them are imprisoned, and some of them are tortured. And so in the aftermath of this persecution, Cyprian has a mixed community. He has in the room at one time people who lapsed, people who who offered the pinch of incense and honored the emperor to save their lives or bribed someone to say that they did. And they have people in the room who lost loved ones in the arena or who have survived the arena and are missing an arm or have been named. They're all sitting in the same room. And now it's time for the communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the sign of community for the body of Christ. What's that like as a pastor? Wow. And, and I'm reminded of my conversations with my pastor friends over the last couple of years about COVID. Hmm. We're in a community. You have people with very different viewpoints about things like vaccines, and but you have people in the community who maybe would be very anti this or pro that other people in the community who've been very affected by this. I have pastor friends who told me that they had people say to them, if you, if you don't pass this policy, we're leaving Hmm. others saying, if you do pass this policy, we're leaving. And as a pastor, where's unity in the midst of all this? And how do you deal with a congregation that's being broken apart by these kinds of issues? And how do you hold together the communion of saints, even in the local church? when there are these forces that would, that would tear apart the body of Christ. So when we, when we talk today about such doctrines as, um, as the Trinity, the, de- the depravity of humanity, Christian unity, of course, all of these things are rooted in the Scriptures, all of them. Yes, yes. But when we talk about developed thought, um, you're, you're, you're telling us we have, we have North Africa to thank. Yes, because it's— what you have in scripture are a lot of direct teachings and a lot of guidelines, but as people experience life, as things change in society, as new situations appear on the horizon, then the question is, okay, how do we apply that, those scriptural principles now? And that's, that's what's happening in the early church. I, the, the image that I use is it's like building the transcontinental railroad and you're building a railroad and you're off and you have a start. And then all of a sudden, oh, look, here are the Rocky Mountains. What do we do now? Hmm. That's, that's Cyprian. Hmm. What, what do we do now? Hmm. There's, there's nothing in the, Okay, nowhere in Scripture does Paul say, okay, here's the thing. After persecution, if you have some people who lapsed and some people who didn't, here's how you handle that. There's nothing about that directly in Scripture. And so they're trying to live out in real time. How do we apply scriptural principles? What are the primary principles? What are secondary principles? Um, for Cyprian, a primary principle is unity. And in his mind, you have unity, and then you have the work of Satan trying to destroy unity. This mind, those are the two options. Hmm. So what we're seeing is, is that they're working through these things, and, and we know that they were influential. So perpetual infelicity, how do you respond to persecution? We know they were influential because that particular passion, which is part one of the book, that, that text 
is recorded and repeated and copied thousands of times. It was wildly popular through the Middle Ages. So when people were thinking about persecution, they were thinking about the lens of, of two African women. How did they respond to persecution? When the church is thinking about the sovereignty of God and you have, you have Calvin and you have people like um, Jacob Arminius, they're thinking about the issues of the sovereignty of God, depravity, through the lens of Augustine. Hmm. And with Tertullian, the Trinity. So, so many of the later discussions and debates that in some ways we're still having, are they directly come through these thinkers in Africa who were doing their best in their own time to, to work these things out. So there, it, it, there's no, no question about it that there are parts of our theology that we can directly tie through African sources that have had a huge impact in subsequent centuries. Wonderful. Let's. Um, one of the last things I want to I want to ask. You know, we've we've talked about kind of the theology, the theology, the theological roots that that um, that we do have in in North Africa, and this has been so helpful in 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 aiding and assisting us in connecting these dots. The I, I just remember your your book grabbed me from go, um, and and I want to shift a little bit here uh, because I think uh, as an African American Christian man. One of the one of the challenges that I had for so many years was looking around, trying to find historical heroes of the faith um, that that looked like me, uh-huh. that 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 kind of sh- um, shared uh, similar DNA, if that makes sense. Um, uh-huh. I I read and it's like towards right towards the beginning of your book and was introduced. I had heard of her before, but but hadn't explored her to the extent in which you do. A African woman uh, by by the name of Perpetua or Pe- Perpetua. Yeah. How do you say yeah, her name? Perpetu- Perpetua. Yes. Okay. So tell us about her because she's remarkable. Yes. Yeah, so Perpetua. We have something called the Passion of Perpetua and Felicity. And Perpetua, as the account tells us, was an aristocratic, educated woman. And these events take place around the year 202 or 203. And where is she Um, from? And and she's from Africa. She's in the area of of Carthage, so North Africa, so modern Tunisia. Okay. And so she is a Christian who is caught up in some kind of roundup of Christians. We don't know the backstory. And, but we do know that a lot of early Christian persecution was really sporadic and, and unpredictable, which is part of what made it so frightening, is you never knew where it was going to happen. And so there's some kind of roundup of Christians, and she's among them. And what's uh, particularly important about this text is that the text includes long periods of, of text, or a lot of information, that claims to come from the pen of Perpetua herself. Now, some scholars have doubted these things, and and some of the reasons are, frankly, I would say that they just want to doubt them. But this is an extraordinary text in the ancient world because it, it's about a woman and actually in her own voice, which is very remarkable. Wow. So Perpetua has a young child who's still breastfeeding. And the tensions in the text that show up are, especially with her father, who says to her several times, come on, I'm an old man. Your baby's here. Think of your family first. Hmm. Think of your family, and Perpetua says, "No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to put that ahead of my faith." And this tension runs throughout the text. Now, the other tension that runs throughout the text, from a, a global perspective, is 
here's a woman who is who is not part of the church hierarchy and yet is inspired by God to do remarkable things. Hmm. And so part of the legacy of Perpetua in church history, is a, there's an ambiguity there. Yes, she's a hero, but she's also a little bit dangerous because she's not part of the official church hierarchy. But she goes to her death. Uh, she has a series of visions uh, explaining what's going to happen after death. How does she and die? that motivate her. She dies. She's in the arena. They try to kill her more than once, which is not, people think that's unbelievable. Not at all unbelievable. It's actually harder to kill someone than you might think with some of these methods. She ends up in the arena for the second time, and she finally guides the hand of the executioner sword to her throat, and he slits her throat. Mm. Uh, they try to kill her with the beast, but, but the beast, after they eat a certain number of people, they kind of get bored. <laughs> and so she eventually guides the quivering hand of the executioner to her throat, and he ends her life in the arena. Wow. Wow. Um, so a powerful story, and but really disturbing. You can see she's in prison, and her father brings her baby into the prison and says, look at your child. Yep. And this is it's a very emotive scene of, of the choices that she has to make. Felicity, the other heroine of the story, facing a very similar kind of choice. And it really puts the cost of discipleship right in front of the reader. And you feel through her story, wow, this is, this is not just kind of, what would this be like? It's, what would it really be like if what you were giving up was something that society says is more important than anything else? As a Roman aristocratic woman, her primary responsibility was to serve her family. And she's instead feels like she has to go to her death to serve Christ. It's a powerful uh, and challenging story. And it was in antiquity, and it still is today, which I think is what part of what makes it so popular. When I have this uh, classes on early Christianity, students love this story because it really is so gripping. Hey, folks, we've been talking to Dr. David Eastman, Ph.D. from Yale University and author of Early North African Christianity. Do yourself a favor and pick up this book. He's also a, um, a teacher, a professor at uh, the Macaulay School uh, in Chattanooga, uh, which is, I don't think it's an overstatement to say um, it, it is a very elite school. So for him to uh, teach or talk about these things. Uh, it's just its just amazing and beautiful to me all at once. I think this conversation is a needed conversation, especially within the multi-ethnic space. I think if you are someone who teaches, preaches, leads an aspiring multi-ethnic church, you need to be able to articulate these things, use them um, either as kind of analogies, uh, use, talk frequently of these early church fathers, but but just don't do so in a general way. Give them their appropriate historical geographical context. And when people of color in your churches hear you actually talking about, oh yeah, so-and-so who is from North Africa, that is incredibly affirming because it lets us know that we play a significant role in God's redemptive plan throughout history. And so, uh, again, and I cannot recommend enough that you pick up Dr. David Eastman's book, Early North African Christianity. 
Thanks a lot, folks. You've been listening to the Kainos podcast. We are a uh, pastoral podcast uh, looking at what ethnic unity uh, is like in a large, predominantly white Southern church known as the Summit Church. Please, if this podcast has been a blessing to you, uh, you can like us, you can write a favorable uh, review, you can subscribe to us. Uh, Every little bit helps to uh, facilitate us getting the word out and extending our reach. Dr. Eastman, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me.